Welcome everybody. Thank you. Um, how's everybody doing? How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Um, so, Patrick and I, Steph's husband, just were launching his podcast and we just did two episodes and I was like, went really well. Nice. But I always cooked dinner on Wednesday nights for like the staff members who were around, so I like we podcasted, tried to cook dinner and then run it, you know? <laughs> so all right, should we pray? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we bless you today. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy. Uh, Lord, tonight we pray for everyone who is uh, kind of has stress or anxiety. Uh, pray that they would be able to surrender that to you. Uh, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to turn towards you tonight, uh, to leave behind our anxieties. Lord, anyone who's struggling, may you speak to them in their heart and their soul. Lord, may you bless me tonight to teach well and uh, just be our guest, guide us. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, how's everybody doing? I already asked that. Um, so, why don't we review? Can anybody tell me what we talked about last week? Okay, creation. What else? Original sin, right? Can anybody tell me, and so on original sin, what are the three kind of powers of your soul? Good. Right, so you have an intellect. The other one we could add to that, depending on how you slice the pie, is you could add memory to that. But when we talk, it's so funny, like sometimes some of the most basic things about Christian understanding of the world are things that aren't commonly just explained. And that's unfortunate. But the soul, right, when we talk about Christians believe in a soul, and like, I feel like it's very hard to find why. This is why. Is that if you try to explain how, especially these first two, if you try to explain what an intellect is or a will without something that is not physical, you end up saying very, very unintelligent things. And earlier in class, at the start of the year, we kind of talked about how not just Christians, but basically, if you want to believe that you have an intellect and that you have free will, you really cannot say that unless you believe that there is some part of you that is not physical.
You just can't do it. It's connected. The Catholics believe that your body and your soul are intimately connected. And that, that intimate union is what we call you. And so death, what death actually is, is the separation of your body and your soul. Okay, but anyway, so intellect, will, and passions. Remember last week we talked about original sin. We talked about how when Adam and Eve sinned against God, the creature rebelled against the creator. The higher being was, you know, revolted against by a lower creature. And so part of the, what happened to us now is our, and again, if you just look at your life, I don't know how you make sense of it, but understand you must. So much of our life is that our passions, they want to run the show. And they want to dominate these things. And so original sin does not mean that you did something wrong. That's not what it means. It means you were born into a world where something's wrong with the world, and all of us have something wrong with us. And so our, our passions, which aren't necessarily bad, passions are neutral generally. They can be bad, they can be good, uh, but generally they're pretty neutral. Our passions, they want to run the show. So if you just think about your own life, right, your intellect is what tells you what is true. The intellect is your power that you have in your soul that makes it possible for you to grasp what is true. In our time, right, there, there's, and it's funny, you go back to the Enlightenment, and I don't want to get, we can talk about the Enlightenment, we will talk about that more with time. The Enlightenment is a philosophical movement, dominantly, but it's also political, it also involves the arts. The Enlightenment was a movement of the 18th and 19th century, mostly, that sought to kind of say, we're going to kick religion out of things, and we're just going to use our minds. Right? We're, we're only going to be hyper-rational. Um, but it's interesting, the Enlightenment almost immediately goes off the rails, and you have certain thinkers in that time who begin to say, well, why... Why should our intellect matter? Maybe it should just be our passions. And I'm gonna, I, I didn't look this up tonight, but I, I, I want to say it's John Locke who said that the intellect is the slave of the passions in a good way. Okay, so what does that mean? What that means is instead of looking for the truth of my mind and saying, this is true, and I'm going to choose what is true, your intellect is how you know things, your will is how you choose things. Instead, I just desire or I fear X, Y, or Z, and that's what really matters, and I'll use my intellect and my will to justify. For a Christian thinker, and not just Christians, but for 99% of human history, we want to say that that's a bad way to kind of look at the world. 
Right? If we disagree about things, the easiest example right now is politics. Right? If, if there's someone on the opposite end of the political spectrum from you, which would never happen in our country because we're so unified, um, how do you come to an agreement? If all it is is I want this and you want that, that's a pretty broken place to be. And what, what you know, the Greek philosophers, Muslim philosophers and thinkers, Romans, Christians, you name it, what we have always said is that at some level, the playing field needs to be up here. Right? So original sin, what original sin does is it affects all three areas. The passions want to rebel against our intellect and our will. So you know, everyone in this room knows that the purpose of your life is not wealth or pleasure. You know that. Kind of. You, you know it up here. But your passions, just like mine, say, yeah, but I really, really want pleasure and comfort and wealth. And what, what the Christian says, if you say, if you look at the world today, you say, what's wrong with the world? There's a lot of answers out there. The Christian answer is, what's wrong with the world? And one story on this, G.K. Chesterton who is a Catholic convert. He was a huge influence on C.S. Lewis um, and a brilliant Catholic British thinker and just a character. He was kind of this overweight guy who always had like a pipe in his mouth and just kind of was like really witty and fun and loved Chesterton. But um, I'm going to figure out what I was going to say. What's wrong with the world right now? Thank you. God bless you. So Chesterton, one time there was a, a contest for an essay about what's wrong with the world. And Chesterton sat down and he wrote a chapter of what would be a, later become a, a book. And his answer was, me. And that's the Christian answer. The Christian answer is that there's something wrong inside of me. And you can't fix the world. The, you, you can't fix everything out there in the world if you can't fix your soul. If I'm not a person who cares about what is good and right and true, and if I can't have my intellect and my will have control of my desires and my fears, that's the deepest thing that's wrong with the world. And it's always easy, and we, we could all make examples of this, it's easy to point at somebody else. We all do it, right? I do it as well. We say, what's wrong with the world? And I always say, the Presbyterians. Right? <laughs> right? You can say that. It's easy to say it's that person. It's her. It's that. You know? And what Chesterton said is, what's wrong with the world is me. And I love that. So, original sin meant the passions rebelled. And there's rebellion inside of my soul. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to come, and part of what he comes to do is to make things right inside of us. 
is that my desires and my fears no longer rebel against what I know is right and good. Yeah? Is there something in the hierarchy passage below intellect? Is there something above intellect, like the observer, the watcher, one, like, like kind of behind that? Not inside of the soul. So these are powers. They're not, they're not the person, his or herself. Um, but, but in terms of powers inside of your soul, the intellect is the highest. Um, but they play different roles. It doesn't mean, for instance, right, like the will is unimportant. So for instance, like one thing I know in my life is hard is like um, I feel like in my intellect I have learned so much and that God has given like such beautiful truth in this world that I feel like I know a lot about what is true. But my will sometimes is a little like, I want a 27th Oreo, <laughs> right? And so, so just to say the intellect is higher doesn't mean that the will is not incredibly important or that your passions aren't either, but, but we would say there is a hierarchy there. Um, and then last thing, right, if you remember last time, we should keep moving. Uh, what happened in the fall is that your intellect was darkened. And, and we all, again, it's just easier to see this in other people than in yourself. But you can look at other people and there's something that seems so plainly obvious and they just don't see it. And we actually think, we think your intellect is good one of the differences, if you're coming from a Protestant tradition, and this is a big difference between Catholics and Protestants, Catholics think, remember we talked last week about how we think that your like, original sin means your car is like, or your soul is like a car that has the alignment off a little bit. Catholics still think that your soul is good. You are so good. But something's a little off. And by the way, I just this is my plug always at RCIA. If you can't admit that about yourself, if you can't see that, you will never be a Christian. I, I just promise you that you'll never be a Christian. Um, because what that means is that you're God. And the hardest like people for me to deal with in some ways is when I meet people, and you know, I'm like, I know it's hard to come talk to a priest. You know, I get like, marriage prep is always the place I encounter it the most. And you get these non-Catholics and they come to me and I'm like, I would be rooted out too. I'm like, all right, let's go talk to the priest. He's never going to get married, never has been married. Let's ask him to prepare us for marriage. But <clears throat> oftentimes I'll encounter people in marriage prep who are just, they have no problems, everything's fine. I'm perfect. Nothing's ever been wrong. And I'm kind of like, okay, good luck. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I'm like, I'm a freaking train wreck. <laughs> I am a mess. And if you can't relate to that, I don't know how to relate to you. Um, anyway, okay, so intellect is darkened. Your will is weakened. Right? We all, this is the easiest one. Our wills are weak. I know I should love that person, but I just can't seem to do it. 
I know that I should not lust after women. I can't seem to do it. I know that I should not love money or shopping or whatever as much as I do. I just can't seem to curb that desire. That means your, your will isn't as strong as it could be, right? And your passions have become disordered. Not totally, right? Not everything you desire is messed up, right? Like, in fact, most of what you desire is good. St. Augustine would say, in fact, everything you desire is good, but Satan wants to twist it a little bit. Um, so your desire, like, like money, for instance, in the Bible, is not a bad thing. And people often say, well, doesn't, doesn't it say that the money is the root of all evil? It doesn't. It says the desire for money is the root of all evil. Money's not a bad thing. But if you love money more than your kids, something's a little twisted, right? So that's the original sin. So let's pause there. We're going to dive more into the narrative. Uh, questions, thoughts, complaints? Stephanie. Um, someone said, I've been told that this is kind of a little bit off, but you kind of mentioned something about Protestantism. So like, oh, yeah. So I've been told that Catholicism has no denominations. In that context, how would you explain the different masses? For example, novice, ordo, traditional, I'm not, et cetera. It's hard to wrap your head around when you're new to Catholicism. Okay, good. Let me say one thing really quick, and then I'll answer that. <clears throat> so, one thing I just thought of, I meant to say this. So, a big difference between Catholics and Protestants. So, Luther, it starts with him. Luther believes in what's called total depravity. And if I'm not mistaken, Calvin did as well. Does anybody know what total depravity means? Anybody come from this background? Yeah, you, thank you. You can't do anything good of your own. And there's, a, there's, there's some scripture that tends that looks like it says that. I would argue against it. But the, the Protestant tradition tends, again, we always have to be careful. I don't want to overly caricature, but very deeply in Protestantism, there is a sense that you are not good. Catholicism says when original sin happened, your alignment got taken out of whack. And it's hard, and you know this, right? Like, you know you've, you've got to work to not be such a jerk. You have to do that. I have to do that. Right? Like, I have RBF. If you don't know what that is, go ask one of your kids. I totally have it. And, like, I, Steph can tell you, I give the cold shoulder to people. I do not hide my emotions well. I'm just not good at it. And I need to be better about loving people. But a Catholic would say, That's, your alignment's off. You got, you got pulled straight. Luther and Calvin tended to say, nothing you do is good. When original sin happened, the Protestant reformers, what they say is that, and we'll get to this when we talk about justification, which is the question of how does someone go to heaven? How is someone made just before God? Luther said, you are a pile of manure. He loves you a lot, but you're a pile of manure. And there's nothing you can do. And he, his image was what happens in Christianity, he said, is you're a pile of 
And what happens is God's grace is like snow. And if you ever look at a manure pile that's covered in snow, does it look good? Yeah. It looks good. It looks like a hill of snow. It's beautiful. But underneath, you are a pile of. <laughs> I like doing that a little too much. That's original sin. Um, Catholics don't believe that. We don't. We believe you are good. Something's wrong, but you are good. Um, okay, so the question was, though, denominations, and I'll try to get this really quickly. We're going to get to this when we talk about Catholicity, so this is a good transition, actually, to tonight. Um, so, um, I have an eraser, I don't think. Can you guys check for an eraser? Um, so the, in the Catholic Church, the question is unity versus um, uniformity. So, so the question was, coming in from somewhere on the internet, that, um, okay, so I've always heard Catholics don't have divisions. We're going to talk about that. Super powerful. We believe that Jesus Christ founded one church. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight and why that matters so much. But here's the thing. There are different types of Catholics. So in the Catholic Church, you can go to an Eastern Orthodox Church is united to the Catholic Church, and the liturgy will look very differently than if you came to Mass here. And the caricature of Catholicism is that it's a bunch of frat boys who look exactly the same, who dress the same, and it's like, that is uniformity. Which does not equal unity. Here's, here's my point, is that, so we're going to talk about this, but we might as well just dive in now. If you're coming from a non-Catholic Christian tradition, you're most likely coming from a Protestant tradition. Does anybody know how many Protestant churches there are today? 33,200 to check. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. That sounds right. You're more confident than me. That's about right. Yeah, I was going to say 30,000. That's about right. So there's, there's 33,000. Um, this, there, this, is, this is maybe the greatest argument against Protestantism. If you're coming from a Protestant background, and again, all the right caveats, you will hear me in this, in this class, can we just do this tonight? Um, you're going to hear me go after Protestantism. The, the caveat I want to make is that many, many Protestant Christians, many, 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 many of them are better Christians than I am. They love Jesus probably more than I do. They are very, very good people. I believe they will go to heaven 100%. Um, I don't know that. Only God knows that, but I believe that. I have no reason to doubt that they will go to heaven. That doesn't mean they're right. And what you will hear me say here is my, one of my very big, bold statements I make every year, and, but it's just true. I'm going to talk to you about my own witness. Again, I admire my Protestant brothers and sisters, I would be an agnostic non-Christian before I would ever be a Protestant. And we're going to talk about why in this class. Um, but, to get to this, so uniformity versus unity, Protestantism, the truth is one. 
But does that mean we all have to look like a bunch of frat boys? Do we all have to look exactly the same? And the answer is no. So my, one of my favorite theologians, Hansers von Balthasar, he has a book called Truth is Symphonic. I love this. He's, at, he's answering this question. And what he says is uniformity is not the same as unity. So if you go to a symphony, which I know all of you go to a symphony all the time because you're very cultured people. If you go to a symphony, Balthazar's analogy is this. Is he says, um, when you go, what happens is all the musicians, they start to warm up. And so the violinist and the cellist come out and the oboe player and the bassoon and whatever and the pianist and they're playing, and what they do is they all kind of play their own song. Because they're warming up. That's what you do. And Balthazar says, that's like world history. So the Chinese culture and the Peruvian culture and those beloved Canadians and everyone else, there's something really good. So, so those musicians on this stage, before the symphony starts, they're all playing their own song, and that's really good. You in your life, you come from a particular background, you have people who loved you, your parents, your extended family, your friends, etc., etc. That's really good. And what Balthazar says, though, in a symphony, at a certain point, a conductor steps to the stage. And a conductor, and I love this, makes me emotional, it's so beautiful, I love this. The conductor does not create uniformity. Let me say that again. A conductor does not create uniformity. What a conductor does is he creates unity, or what Balthazar says is he creates symphony. In great music, the violinists are not playing the same thing that the wind section is playing. But there's a unity that's held together by the conductor where everyone finds their home in the symphony, but there are boundaries to it. It doesn't mean you can just play your own song. You're drawn into the one work of that composer but it doesn't mean you have to lose yourself. This is the caricature of Catholicism. I was on a plane ride once. It's how we never get anywhere in RCIA. Um, it's all your fault, as I always say. I was on a plane ride once, and, I, and this young girl was a like, Baptist, and I was in my collar. And this was like a teenage girl. She was like 15, which means she looked to me like she was like six. Right? Um, but she was just genuinely curious. She had never seen a Catholic priest before. And she was asking me about Catholicism. And I was talking to her, and I was like, you know, why are you, she's like, why are you Catholic? And we, whatever, talked about all kinds of things. And I, could, I was very conscious, the other girl, so I was on the aisle, the young girl was in the middle seat, and there was another woman sitting against the window. And the woman sitting against the window was, you could feel her frustration. And I could feel it, and I'm kind of like, I kind of wanted to poke it, but I was also kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm not playing this pretty, you know. And you, you also know as a priest, all the aisles around you are listening to you. And I'm like, oh boy, where is this going to go? So at one point, she asked me, she's like, well, 
She's like, I, I basically said, I want everyone to be Catholic because I think it's the truth. And this girl next to the window lost it. It was this breaking point. She couldn't handle it anymore. And she just lost it on me. And she was like, how could you want everyone to be the same? What is wrong with you? How could you want everyone to be the same? And I don't think I have this answer. Right? You know, like when you never have the right answer in the moment. Dang it. Hopefully you're watching right now. Um, this is the answer. You don't have to have my personality. St. Thomas Aquinas is radically different. St. Thomas Aquinas is, outside of Christ, maybe the smartest person who ever lived. St. Francis of Assisi hated books and wanted them all to be burned except for the Bible. They're both saints. Right? You have, you have tremendous diversity in the body of Christ, but there's, there's a mystical symphony that's held in unity. And so the long way to answer this internet question is that the church believes that the church, there, there are legitimate diversities in the body of Christ that are important, but there are boundaries. So with the 33,206 Protestant denominations, what happened was that when the Reformation happened, we'll get to this eventually someday in like two years from now, that when Luther and Calvin come along in the 16th century, they say things that contradict blatantly what 1,500 years of Christians have taught and believed. And the church says there is a boundary. Um, so that's a long answer, but isn't, isn't that a symphony analogy? Isn't that beautiful? This means yes. This means no. Thank you. Um, Balthazar, by the way, was a, he was a priest, a Swiss priest. Um, he was a concert-level pianist. Um, and a total badass in a lot of ways. Okay, other questions? What's, yeah. what's the Catholic version of that number in terms of like denominations within the Catholic, or I don't know if denominations is the right term, but like yeah. the within the boundaries debate. I mean, I forget the number off the top of my head. So we don't, we don't believe it, but you're correct. We don't like the term denomination because it, it implies a separation. Yeah. But there, does anybody know, I think there's 21, and what we, the word we use is rights. And so, so the way that we look at this is that when Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, he ascends to heaven, he sends out the 12 apostles, um, Paul and Matthias, so 13 really. But anyway, um, Judas is, you know, dead. Um, he sends them out, and what happens is that uh, the truth of Jesus Christ goes to Syria and to Rome. St. Thomas goes to India and what happens is the one truth of Christ is embodied and enfleshed in different cultures. And those rites, primarily liturgically, are, well, kind of the way to look at that. I think it's 21. I could be wrong. Yeah. So I have, like, I mean, I've been thinking about this question about time, but mm -hmm. also have a lot of, like, people I know 
one of the ones that like, health care is very dramatic. Yep. So like they don't have any sort of like authority structure in the way right. they worship and like um, learn about the Lord. And so to me, it's almost like one or the other. It's like, okay, you either like all in your Catholicism or like you have like no authority because like Protestants have all these like denominations and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about like the non? Yeah, like 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 the house church kind of. Yeah, like, like what's the argument against that? Is that like that's not too like divisive? It's a great question. So let me repeat it for our internet audience. If I can correct me if I get this wrong. So, so she was saying she comes from a Protestant background, and in her mind, like you either have like the Catholicism like um, kind of authority structure, or like a house church where it's like we're all just Christians. Let's just follow the Lord together. The Holy Spirit will guide us, yeah. right? That kind of thing. Is that fair? Yeah. So here's what I'd say. Um, the and we're gonna get to this with the church. Don't you every like my this girl Brittany who used to run our CIA with me and um, Stephanie have taken over for her. She would count how many times I say we'll get to that, and she would write it down. And she's like. 204, 205. Um, but the church is not primarily a hierarchy. It has a hierarchy, and I think this is important. When people think of Catholicism, they think of the hierarchy. Catholicism does not believe the hierarchy is the church. The hierarchy is an aspect, and here's the analogy I would use. And so people say, do you have structure, do you have hierarchy, or do you just are you more free-spirited? And to me, it's like bones and flesh. And you see this all over the place. So people will react to the Catholic Church and they'll say, when they encounter it sometimes, and I sympathize with this, by the way, sometimes you can encounter Catholics just bones. Yeah, like... You've got your hierarchy, you've got your list of truths, and it's dead. And it's dry. And that, and I would argue that's why so many people have left the Catholic Church. Um, when we treat the church as just this, it's death. And what people want, right, is they want, right, you want to go and feel alive. It's like, wow, like, we, uh, I probably told this story. We had a girl in our CIA when I first came to Lourdes, her and her husband. And she, I, we would teach things, and, and she was like, intellectually, she's like, oh my gosh, I can't argue against that. That's so true. And she'd go, that's so true, but what does your heart say? And I'm like, well, I don't, those things aren't opposed. So, but the, wait, if you just have flesh, imagine a body that just has flesh. It doesn't work. And the, the fullness of the one church of God is meant to hold these things together. And the problem you have with house churches, so I met, and one more story. Um, can we make RCIA two years this year? You guys are okay with that? So I met a, a pastor early on here when I was made pastor of Lords, who is the pastor of a house church. I don't know if he still is. I won't name the name. It's a very popular flashy kind of house church um and we went and grabbed coffee with him a couple of two of my other priest friends and i he's a really nice guy very likable super friendly um you know and just 
we didn't get too much into things because like it's kind of like you know you disagree with someone and you're like let's not fight let's just get to know each other and that's kind of how the conversation went but when my, my one friend father michael lachlan asked him and he said he knew that in house churches right now there's a renewed interest in liturgy which is really weird um but there's a renewed interest in, and when we say liturgy, it's like our mass, our Catholic mass. There's a lot of Protestants who are like, we did the mega church thing. And what's happening right now, one of the things happening in evangelical Protestantism, is you go to a huge church, right? And it's like, you connect with the pastor. Um, the music is amazing. But at a certain point, you're like, something's missing. Like, I, I want to be a part of something smaller where I actually know people and not, like, this major Hollywood production. Um, so anyway, so this guy's doing that. And so my friend Father Michael asked him, he said, what do you do for your services, for your liturgy? And he said, well, um, I, I look ahead, I get a Catholic Roman Missal, which is what we use for the Mass, and I get an Anglican Book of Common Prayer, and I just kind of make up what we're going to do that week. Now, he might not be representative, but my blood was boiling. <laughs> Absolutely boiling. And here's the problem with that. The critique of the Catholic Church is that it's super arrogant, and you guys think you have all authority from God. And I didn't say it that day because it wouldn't have ended well. <laughs> and I'm a melancholic and I hate conflict. So it's just not something I would ever do. What I wanted to say to him is I wanted to say to him, you just gave yourself more authority than any pope in all of Catholic history. You just gave yourself more authority than any pope in all of Catholic history. And I, I, was, I, I had to actually kind of like calm down uh, because you hear non-Catholic Christians, and again, they don't mean this, and oftentimes they haven't thought about this, but they accuse Catholics of like this hyper-authoritarian bone structure. And again, not every Protestant is like this, of course, but th there's a danger of like, Calvin did this, where the pastor becomes much greater authority than any pope ever has had. Luther said this in his own lifetime. He said, I set out to get rid of the Pope and I created a thousand Popes. Because everyone interprets Scripture however the hell they want to interpret Scripture, which is why we have 33,206 Protestant denominations. How many? 33,323 out of 2010. I had to look it up. I was off. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of Protestant like churches. Um, so does that, does that kind of answer it, though? I think, and I think that's the tension for me. So Catholics, the critique of our own church, is like, and I know priest friends of mine who need to learn, like, the bones matter. And, and one last thing, I promise, last thing. The problem, if you just say it's, we shouldn't have a hierarchy, it should be house church. The problem is you have to ignore the New Testament. You have to pretend that there's all kinds of things in the New Testament that we're just going to pretend aren't there. And that's, that's a hard thing. So we're going to talk about, I mean, the obvious one is Matthew 16, 18, which is the papacy. But in the pastoral letters, um, and I don't have the 
all the exact references at my fingers. But in First and Second Timothy, in Titus, you already have a hierarchy. Already in the New Testament. Um, and we're going to talk about how the earliest Christians who followed after that in the first century, they already assumed Christ established a hierarchy. It's here. This is what he did. Um, and this is what the church is. So. I noticed that the Protestants don't have any Bible. No, the, so the Protestants have all the same books Catholics do. It's a good question. So Protestants have all the same books Catholics have in the New Testament. There's Old Testament books that are disputed. What are often called the Deuterocanonicals. But. Anybody else? Yeah? I'm sorry, keep dropping this on. Hopefully That's okay. Yes no this is why it's so good. This, this is super good. It's just that we're not going to talk about prayer at the end of class. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what are the Roman Catholics? Uh -huh. And what are the Orthodox Catholics? Like, what's Yep. Would you have to be like rebaptized into like the Greek Orthodox division, and do those people all answer to the Pope? They all answer to the Pope within the Catholic Church. Um, so, so the best way to understand this: No, you would not be rebaptized in another Catholic rite. And here, here's the best way to think of this: So, in the ancient world, what happened was um, Catholicism, and Jesus comes into a world in the Roman Empire, at least, right? where you have a Latin-speaking West and a Greek-speaking East. So, so one way to think of this is, like, if you... I don't know if anybody's ever been to a, a Spanish-speaking to a, like, Hispanic mass. We believe the same things, but if you go to a... If you go to an a Anglo mass, like here at Our Lady of Lourdes, people are very proper... They, they want to be silent. If a kid is crying, people are trying to quiet their kids. If you, and this is a caricature, but you go to a Hispanic mass, it's not like that. And like for us as Anglos, it feels like chaos. They believe the same thing. They love Mary. They love Jesus. They believe all the dogmas we believe. But it's a different culture that that one truth isn't fleshed inside of. And so it's something like that. And so you would never be rebaptized. We believe the same thing. Baptism happens once. Um, it's, it's the same truth in a different language, if that's one way of saying it. All right. Do you guys want a break? Okay, thank you. I love when you just stare at me. It's so cute. <laughs> I'm like, do you guys want a break? You're <laughs> okay, let's get a couple of break and we'll start back up. That was just a guess. That's really good. Uh, the internet is more challenging, but they're both at the same time. But the other one about this idea about 
with you tonight. You just give me more time. So in the proposition, what do you try to start with you got from a Jewish rabbi? I didn't have to use the Bible. So anyway, a Jewish rabbi is like the and uh, actually in Jeff wrote a letter to uh, Mike McGee, Deacon Mike McGee wrote a letter to the to them. His life was it was just a God's blessing that he could, you know, afford or he was going to put this up. Anyway, so he said, I'm going to do that. He's going to reform. I didn't know that yet. And he has a letter on this thing. He's like, no, after much thought of myself, I've decided to make an all-inclusive Jewish community. And I'm like, what? You just make your own rules? <laughs> How's this work? So, you know, it's beyond just Protestantism. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. You know, Judaism has a lot of history. It's funny that we're not. No, that's not a good point at all. Yeah. No, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, and you need you need you need somebody who can draw boundaries. Right? There's there are boundaries. There's there's symphony, but there's boundaries too. No, that's the Althusser stuff is hurt my head. <laughs> right? So okay. he's dense. What is that? On the fact that anybody's going to ask you. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. If it's you, that's off. No, no, no. You're kicking me out. You're going to say, you know that Lengert guy? Get him out. Don't let him in church anymore. I'll let you know. Oh, he's doing fine. He had a C section, so he's sitting around the solar wind for that leg. I'm picking October the 31st. Why would you do that? Oh so maybe not after the first. So at least you not the same what time is the meeting? Yeah. In the afternoon, uh, 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 my wife and I have a feminist belief that we got a girl, and we believe that. You know, the, the, uh, uh, the baby was turned and the baby was coming around. And, uh, it's a great question. There's an average. I'm lying. It's an average. But I think if you get prior to, like, if we go back to years, like someone says, I'm going to you can assume whatever well in the modern world it's not perfect analogy but in the modern world all those things does marriage really mean woman does marriage really mean that it's forever do you have to do you have to go back to kids and so like a hundred years ago and early Christianity you might not know everything, but it was kind of like it's one thing. And in the long history of Christianity, one of the things that's happened is that and become controversial. And so I just think for the for the sake of nobody believed you when understanding that's something like that. I mean, I think there's a, there's the ISO question. I'm like, maybe it would be better if we just said, 
hey, if you're in, let's baptize you. But you're going to be. They don't know what it is. We're baptizing you first. And then after that, we're going to And I know what I mean. It's like a church like that kind of makes sense. That's a great question. Thanks for asking. Yeah. 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 Okay, folks, should we try to hit new ground? All right, here we go. All right, so we want to talk about the story of the Bible. Um, the Bible, what a lot of people wish the Bible was, and the way a lot of people treat the Bible is they treat it like a manual for your car. And I will tell you, it is not that. The Bible is not a manual for your car. The Bible has all kinds of different types of literature inside of it. It has, um, it has grandiose narrative. It has moral instruction. It has wisdom literature. It has songs. We call them the Psalms. It has all kinds of things. Um, it has parables. It has apocalyptic writings. There are all kinds of different genres. But if we had to choose one that's the most overarching, um, it's the Bible is a story. That's what it is. And there's a reason for that, right? Like, there's a reason why people love novels and why they love movies more than they love reading, you know, instruction manuals for your dishwasher. There's a reason for that. You and I were made for story. And there is a story to the world. There's a story, and what Christians believe, and Jews, is that there is a story to the world. So, that story, we've already started it, we're going to advance it tonight, is that God created the world good. Right? That's Genesis 1 and 2. That world rebelled, Adam and Eve rebelled against him, and the world became broken. Still good. Your car is still good. The alignment's off. That happens in Genesis chapter 3. And we'll go into more detail maybe at some point. Who knows? You never know where I say it's going to go. You never know. Uh, and the question then becomes, right after that, things get bad. And so what happens is that sin spreads so rapidly that by the time you get to Noah, um, so in Genesis chapter 6, you get this line, Genesis 6-5 says this, uh, The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth. Anybody ever felt that way? You ever feel right now like everyone hates everyone else? Right? And I hate all... Just kidding, I shouldn't even joke about that. I love all of you. But it feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? It's like, there's so much hatred. St. Ignatius of Loyola talks about how men and women in general, we tend to wound each other and to kill each other, even if not physically. But there's just this tremendous hatred in the world. But anyway, okay. So Genesis 6-5, The Lord God saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11, The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, 
for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So here's the thing. God created the world good. It's broken. And what happens is, is that original sin is universal. It's spread everywhere. And if you want, if you're a, uh, someone who comes with a, a background in the, in the scriptures, this is all over the place in narrative form. But if you want a place that just says it, it's in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, St. Paul talks about this explicitly. And this, by the way, sometimes in RCIA, this is controversial. It shouldn't be. Again, G.K. Chesterton says that um, if there's one dogma of Christians that everyone should agree about, it's that something's wrong with the world. You don't really have to be a Christian to believe that. Something's wrong. Um, okay, so it spreads. Um, by the way, the flood is a new creation. Someone asked about that at some point. Why the flood? We're going to talk about this. You're going to see water has to do with new creation. So when, when God creates the world, the first thing you see is that there's the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and creation comes from thence. And Genesis, uh, with uh, chapter 6 through 8, really. Is it 8? Chapter 9, really. In chapter 9, Noah gets off the ark, and God gives the same commandment. He gave, in Genesis 1, God says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 9, God says to Noah, Be fruitful and multiply, uh, uh, fill the earth, subdue it. It's a new beginning. Noah finds himself in a vineyard, which is meant to echo the Garden of Eden. It's a new beginning. God loves new beginnings, and water usually goes with that. And we're going to see in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 5, St. Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We're going to see that in the Exodus story. In the Exodus story, we're going to see that Israel were in a state of slavery. They're going to pass through water. There's going to be new life on the other side of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and 15. And the New Testament is going to pick that up. And we're going to talk about that with 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and other places. That there's something about water where God wants to make a new creation. See where that's going? Pretty cool, huh? Uh, okay, so sin becomes universal. And this spreads and it builds and it builds and it builds until Genesis chapter 11. Does anybody know what Genesis 11 is? Extra star and brownie points if you know. What? Yes. You do not have to come to any more classes. <laughs> <laughs> I just talked about it with my kids. Awesome. Love it. It's a Tower of Babel. We should get to the top. Right? Um, so here's what happens to Tower of Babel, right? Is that, and there's, there's so much cool stuff here. Oh my gosh, did we do this? Um, oh. Yep. Do it. 
So there's a, there's a hierarchy that happens in Genesis where the firstborn son in the family of Noah becomes the leaders of the covenant family of God. And Noah has three sons. Anybody know the three sons of Noah? Devin? Nope. Seth is the son of Adam. Shem, Ham, and... Come on, Devin. Yes. <laughs> Shem, Ham, and... Starts with a J. Yes. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So here's the thing. So in, in the Bible, right, so the firstborn sons become these leaders. They're the head of the family. Firstborn sons. So Noah's firstborn son is named Shem. In Genesis, leading to the Tower of Babel, um, what happens is that Noah's two other sons, Ham and Japheth, are going to rebel against Shem. Right? You ever had a family like this where like, someone's in charge? Right? If you have a kingdom, the person who is most likely to resent the king is the number two. Right? Um, Right? Like you watch these like like business intrigue movies. Right? The person who's gonna kill the CEO is the second in command. Because they want to be in power. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham, by the way, that, it sounds like a funny biblical name, Ham. Ham becomes the nation of Egypt. And that's in Genesis chapter 10. But anyway, what happens is that Shem is the leader, and Two, the other two rebel against him, and there's, we won't go into this because it's too much. But what happens is in Genesis 11, um, I've got to stop closing my Bible. Bible. In Genesis 11, uh, all these men migrated from the east. In verse 2, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And it says, Let us make a name for ourselves. This is going to be critical. Let us make a name for ourselves. This is going to be the Tower of Babel. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Does anybody know what the Hebrew word for name is? It's on the board, is your hint. Shem. So literally, in the Tower of Babel, there's a rebellion against the person who's in charge of God's family. And they say, let us build a Shem for ourselves. And here's where it gets even better. This is going to blow your freaking mind, and if it doesn't, you can't become Catholic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Blows my mind. I think this is so cool. This is where we have to read the Bible as a story. It's not a, it's not a manual with a bunch of rules. It's a story. So what happens, right, is they build this tower. God is going to come down, and they're rebelling against God. They're uniting against him, and the, the languages, right, are spread there, and they're scattered. We're going to talk about that in a second. Remind me to do that if I know. Languages scatter in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Genesis 12 starts this way, and I bet you'll hear it differently. Um, the Lord God said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who, him who curses you I will curse, and by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. When you follow the story of the Bible, and it, actually that's not the only verse it carries on with Abraham, in Genesis, people want to make a name for themselves. But Abraham is promised that God will give him a name. Abraham doesn't have to build himself up. He doesn't have to be prideful. He doesn't have to grasp. Abraham can surrender to God. That God is the one who builds him up. Um, okay, but here's a really cool thing. This is going to blow your freaking mind. Um, so... When I used to teach deacon scripture, they fired me from that job, rightly so. <laughs> you guys got stuck with me. Um, what happened, what I'd, I used to hammer this in. So Abraham, so we get to this point, and then this is Genesis 11, it's Tower of Babel. And Genesis 12 is Abraham, or Abram. And there's three promises. Let's outline those really quick. What are the three promises? Okay, um, I will make of you a great nation. Second one is what? Not yet. That's really tied to nation, actually. Yeah. What else? You think in Genesis 15? I will make your name great. What does that mean? This is hard. I shouldn't ask that. What that really means is it means dynasty. It means kingdom. And if you think right, Shem is the leader. And we'll see this in Genesis 15, 17, and 22. God is going to affirm all these promises, but it doesn't matter for now. But these are the three promises. Name, nation, name, dynasty. So in other words, kingdom. Dynasty is about a kingdom, which is what Babel was trying to create. And then what's the what's the third one? Yep. And I'm going to use the word universal blessing. Okay. You might you might have all heard this before. But this is so cool. And if you start to get this, you're going to be Catholic. I hope. Um, here's what's so cool. The story of the world is the story of a good world. There was sin. That sin became universal. And in Genesis 3, where you get the fall, there's a universal curse. And that happens in Genesis 3. 
is that we have fallen under a curse. It doesn't mean like Hollywood, like you're under a curse and a hex on your house. It doesn't mean that. It means that the world is broken. And we have fallen under some uh, a curse because of our sinfulness. But guess what? God has a plan. And that plan, the culmination of that plan, is a universal blessing. The rest of the Bible, a basic outline for the rest of the Bible is these three, these three promises. So let's break that down. And by the way, those of you again who come from um, Christian backgrounds, the New Testament is going to make a big deal about Abraham. St. Paul is going to talk about Abraham in Romans 3 and 4, in Galatians 3 and 4, Abraham plays, plays very prominently in the New Testament. This is why. Yeah? Question. When you started this off, you said the Bible is a story. Yep. Explain that. So is it like a, is it historical fiction? Is it? It's both and. So like, so dominantly it's real history. Okay. There are parts that are, like for instance, most of us like would say like Jonah and the Whale is a story meant to tell a truth. Okay. Right? We don't know that that really happened. Those can get complex. Most of the time it's easy to tell if this is just, like when Jesus says, um, a man went down to Jericho, and on his way to Jericho, he found a man, a Samaritan, or he found a, a man laying on the side of the road who was passed out. And a priest passed by and just kept walking. And then a Samaritan passed by and took care of him. Well, that's pretty obvious. That's not a real historical moment. Jesus is telling a story to make a point. There are other ones that are obviously real history. Um, there are others that are a little harder to tell. Um, but the overarching story of the Bible is real history. Um, and the, ch the church absolutely believes that. It's real history, but it's a story that's meant to speak to you. And you're going to see this as we talk more and more. Okay, so there's three promises. So, nation... And that second one that says name grade is kingdom. And the third one is the universal blessing. Okay, when does that promise, when does God fulfill the promise that Israel, that Abraham's descendants would become a great nation? When does that happen? Yeah. So with Moses, Israel really becomes a nation. And you're going to see that the book of Exodus really begins that way, actually. Um, where it goes from being a tribe and the 12 tribes under Jacob, and it really becomes a nation. When does it become a kingdom? David. You've heard of him. He's kind of a big deal. He was king. He had a kingdom. And when did, when does, when does, when did the descendants of Abraham bring blessings to the entire world? Christ. Under Jesus, right? Okay, this is so freaking cool. Um, 
So all of this is, an, is a story building towards Christ. The whole Bible, everything is about him. Is that God had a plan, and his whole plan was about Jesus. Always. It was about him. Um, but the, the really cool thing I love pointing out every year is that, um, does anybody know what the Greek word for universal is? No more answering questions. <laughs> yes, that's right. So the early Christians saw this, the universal blessing. They saw that fulfilled in the one church that God established. And they started to call that church the Catholic Church. Catholic is a, it's a Greek word. And it comes from two, the, two words, kata and holos. And what that means, when you put them together, it means according to the whole. And so the earliest Christians believed that the promise of Abraham, and this is where we get back to that symphony, is that the one promise of God, there was universal curse. The whole world fell under under condemnation, and this is Romans chapter 5, if you want a great place to read about this, this is Romans 5, the whole world fell under that curse of sin. But the God, right, he was working to bring universal blessing to, to undo the curse and to redeem the world. The early Christians, again, when they saw that, and they saw the covenant of God was open to everyone, they named the church as Catholic. The one blessing for everyone, for every language. And by the way, this is so cool. Um, what is the opposite of, of Babel? Babel is right where the, you know, the, the nations were divided. Languages are scattered. What's the opposite of Babel? I love that. You're, no, you're you're correct. I just love that you go. You know, <laughs> you know it's that it's that thing. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to be in purgatory a long time, and we'll talk about purgatory at some point. Um, yes, Pentecost is Pentecost. Oh, this is so freaking cool. This is so cool. Pentecost, right? So on Babel, the languages are scattered. And the world is divided. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls, the apostles preach, and the nations, all the different languages, hear the one truth, each in their own language. And you know what? The Catholic Church considers Pentecost to be the moment the church was created. Created. Pentecost is the birthday of the church. All the nations of the world, Babel is undone on the day of Pentecost. By the way, oh gosh, do we get into that? I don't know. Let's pause and questions, and if we have time, I'll keep you running. Steph. Is not baptized prior to death, 
and may not make it to heaven. I've heard that. Father Brian said last week that babies are not bad or have a disability signal, so would they need to be baptized first? Yeah, so we're going to get to this more in depth when we talk about baptism. But um, we kind of hit on this a little bit with like the, the water, right? Water means new creation. And there's, when we talk about why baptism is necessary, and when, when we touch, start talking about Exodus, like this stuff is cool. When we talk about Exodus, it is going to blow your mind. Every year I'm like, I have taught this hundreds of times in all kinds of settings. Whenever I talk about Exodus as the paradigm for the Christian life, it is like, I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you, Jesus, you called me to the priesthood. This is everything. This is what life is about. It is unbelievably powerful. Okay, so baptism, though, there's a tension there. So babies don't commit sins, right? Like, when you, when you guys are, like, new parents, or those of you who have been before, right, when your baby, like, poops its diaper, you're not like, you little... <laughs> you're not like, you sinner. You did this. On, you will go talk to Father Brian. You will confess your sin, right? You don't do that. Babies don't commit sins. They, they don't have free will yet, right? That's why they can't commit sins. When they're old enough to know with their intellect and to choose what is wrong, even though they know better, that's what we call a sin, right? Babies don't do that. Babies and they eat. That's what they do. That's what they're supposed to do. They don't sin. So anyway, so how can we say babies... Um, the, the short answer to this is that we believe... When we're going to talk about baptism, Jesus is going to tie baptism to how you are united to his cross. When we're going to talk about that in depth when we get there, and when we talk about Exodus, we'll get there, and it will blow your freaking mind. Um, baptism... Right? Jesus died on the cross for me. I love him. But how, how did Jesus' death on the cross because he loved me, how do I share in his victory on the cross? How do I share in the resurrection? I always tell people at baptisms, I don't have the power to rise from the dead as far as I know. <laughs> Haven't tried it yet. <laughs> I don't have that power. None of us do. Only one person has it. I know Jesus loved me. I know he died for me. But how do I know that I can share in his victory over death? The New Testament is going to show us, and we're going to talk about a bunch of scripture passages that say this, that the way that's going to happen is through baptism. Baptism unites you to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and 3, Mark 16, 1 Peter 2. We'll talk about all this stuff. Um, but, so, so on one hand, you need the cross. You need Jesus. So the churches say, like, when, when we baptize it, when a baby's not baptized, we're like, well, you need Jesus to go to heaven. But the tension there is that, very simple, God is good. Right? God is good. And so the church, basically with children who are not baptized, we don't actually have an official teaching. This is where limbo came out of. Right? People used to talk about limbo. And limbo was basically the Garden of Eden for babies. It's like, hey, this bottle is the perfect temperature. Right? It's like that, but it was basically as theologians. There's no official Catholic teaching on this. There is not, and if actually we've now said that limbo doesn't exist, and we never taught it did, but it was a speculation. And basically, the speculation was about, well, we know you need to be united to the cross of Christ to go to heaven. Somehow that has to happen. 
But we also know God's good, and like no good God is going to send a baby to hell. Like we don't believe that. I don't believe that. I will never believe that. Um, that's the tension. And as a Catholic, what we ultimately do is we say, I don't know the answer. If it was up to me, I'd say, well, I'm not God, but I'm like, those babies aren't in heaven. I, I have a hard time believing that, but I just don't know. I haven't been to heaven. I'm not God, but I believe they're in heaven. Is that can I answer it? Okay, other questions? Yeah. No, you and me always have a good one. Okay. Good. So you talk about, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of wrath of God. God was pissed. Yep, and the New Testament as well. Yes. And now you look at our world today, uh -huh. and there is a lot of division. There is a lot of hate. Yep. I, mean, I, I, I always say two words, godless nation, yep. is what I think is happening. So... Why doesn't God just step in like he did at, you know, the Tower of Babylon? Why did this mean just, like, coming down and saying, screw you all, you ruined it, <laughs> right. so I'm going to flood it, we're yeah. going to start a new creation. I, did he promise that somewhere along the line? Well, so in Genesis, after the flood, I think it's in Genesis chapter 8, God promises the rainbow is the promise that he will never again do that. Okay. Um, so this is, this, you're asking a very deep question. So for our television audience, Right? Why didn't God just say, screw you all? I love that. That's Genesis 12, 13. <laughs> screw you all. <laughs> right? He kind of said that to Moses, actually. After the golden calf in Exodus 32, God wants a new beginning. So, but in the New Testament, and this, this is at the heart of the Christian mystery, and, this, and we're going to talk a lot about this because I can't answer this in one line, but at the heart of the Christian mystery is that the problem with the world isn't so much over there versus here. It's, it runs right through me. Right, right through me, right through me is like, there's that war going on, which is Romans chapter 7. St. Paul will talk about that. And any of us, if we're honest with ourselves, there's great good inside of me. And I got, I am a messed up dude, right? Like there's problems and that runs through me. And so a lot of it is that, um, so a major theme of the book of Romans is the wrath of God. The, the Greek, I just want to say, not that it matters, the Greek is orgetheu. And Paul is going to talk a lot about how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and against men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. That's in Romans like 117, I want to say. Um, and what's going to happen is if you follow that theme through Romans, and if this gets complex, we're going to talk about this when we talk about what actually happened on the cross. What actually happened? But what St. Paul is going to say is that the cross delivered us. <laughs> Sorry, I get emotional with all this stuff. God, Christ on the cross delivered us from the wrath of God. And there's some complex questions about that. Um, one of the things we will talk about is that some Christians think that when God the Father looks at Christ, that Christ, it, that God the Father is pissed at Christ. Catholics don't believe that. We just don't believe that. We believe the language of the New Testament is that Jesus makes himself a sin offering. So in the New Testament, Paul will talk all over the place, like 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about this, about how when you go, if you have a sin before God, what you do in the temple is you offer a sacrifice. Hebrews 9 is all about this. Gosh, I am like just dropping scripture. Is anybody fact-checking me? Um, <laughs> Hebrews, Hebrews 9 is one of my favorite lines. Maybe we'll end with this tonight. Or with this question, at least. Um, this is beautiful. 
So in the Old Testament, and this, maybe this will help a little bit, in the Old Testament, there's different, and Leviticus begins this way, if you have a sin before God, you go to offer a sacrifice in the temple to ask for forgiveness. And depending on what you did, there's different types of sacrifice you can offer. Um, and our altars, when we, we're going to have a night upstairs where we look at our altar, I chose the symbols on our altar, and it's all about how the cross fulfills all of this. Um, but, you would go to the temple, and there's different offerings. You can offer a Thanksgiving sacrifice, where you say, my life was in grave danger, and I was doing some really bad things. And God, you love me anyways, and so you go and you make a Thanksgiving offering. But you can go make a different type of sin offering, and you can offer wine or grain, pigeons, goats, um, and the, the biggest one, right, is you would offer a calf or a bull. And I always joke about this in Mass, right? Aren't you glad that's not the case anymore? You're in the confession line, and like you've got like like the guy in front of you's got a pigeon, and you've, you've got a bull, <laughs> and everybody's like, I "Wonder what that guy did." <laughs> yeah. That's what you would do in the, Old in, the, in the Old Testament. So in Hebrews chapter nine, what Saint Paul, or we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Whoever wrote Hebrews, what they say in Hebrews nine, the author says that when Christ came as the new and eternal high priest of the new covenant, he entered into the sanctuary, he's talking about the temple. And by the way, when I say Mass, we're going to talk about this. Every time I say Mass, um, when I kneel behind the altar, every time I think about this verse. Um, so this is Hebrews 9.11, if you want that verse, sorry. So it happens that Jesus, so Hebrews 9 11. So, but when Christ came as the one and eternal high priest of the new and everlasting covenant, he entered once for all into the true sanctuary. And what we're going to learn is the temple is a model of heaven. And so Hebrews says, is that Christ didn't enter the temple in Jerusalem, but the true temple, heaven itself. And the reason it says that. It's because in Exodus 24, when God instructs Moses how to build the tabernacle, is based on the model that he sees on the mountain. Um, but anyway, so Jesus, Hebrews 9 11 says, he didn't go to that temple, he went to this temple. And it says, carrying not the blood of bulls or goats. And here's, here's your question, Bible scholars. When does a when does a Jew offer bull a bull and a goat in the temple? Anybody know? The day when a when a bull and a goat are offered in the temple is the day of atonement. It's called Yom Kippur. So once a year, the high priest. And the Jewish, this is why you got to know the Old Testament, by the way. And this is why the Bible is a story. If you miss, if you don't know the story, if you don't know that the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur offers the bull and the goat, you're going to miss what Hebrews is talking about. Um, 
so, Hebrews 9 11 says that Jesus went to the true temple. The true temple, it says, not made with hands, which is a Jewish way of saying that God made it, not a human being. Um, carrying not, not the blood of bulls or goats, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Um, so I forget what the question was. But, but what we're talking about here, though, is that Jesus becomes on the cross that this division between what is good and what is evil, why doesn't God wipe out the world? Well, in a certain sense, he did on the cross. And in the New Testament, we're going to show how all the passages that look like the end of the world. It's really cool. Like Mark 13 is all like about this. Um, but the book of Revelation is all about this too. Is that it sounds like it's the end of the world, but if you read it carefully, and it is about the end of the world actually, but what it really sounds like is it sounds like the moment Jesus died. And so Christians, in a certain sense, the old world died with the death of Christ, and there was new life on the other side. Um, and we talked about water, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so what God wants to do, he will judge the world, and there is a judgment, um, and that will happen. Romans chapter 2 is very clear about that, so are tons of other places, Matthew 25 in the New Testament. There is a judgment, but the judgment that we are focused on as Christians is that uh, right now, is that when my life is transformed, God can cast my sin out from my heart. Um, and I can be a new creation, right? I can start over, just like Noah in the flood, right? God, God hates sin and He wants to destroy sin. That's what the flood's about. But He wants He wants new life for His children. That's so cool. Ah, I freaking love that. Okay, other questions? Steph, you have lots of questions. Is that Father Mike Rapp? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rapp. He gave it away with his parousia. So he's talking about Hebrews 4.16. What does it mean that we... So Hebrews 4.16 says, Since we have such a great uh, and merciful high priest who has entered into the heavens, let us approach with confidence the throne of grace um, to... Uh, for timely help, something like that. Um, and Father Mike is talking about parousia. So he wrote his, like, he's still finishing his doctoral dissertation, but he's writing sections of a doctoral dissertation on that word, so I hate you. <laughs> so, so, 
Parousia is a word in the New Testament. It's a Greek word that means boldness. And what it's in the ancient world is associated with people who are free. And so when you're free, you're able to speak in a, and it's a political word, and it means you can speak with, con, with boldness and confidence. A slave can be timid at times. They're not sure if they should speak up, but a free person is bold. But to throw a bone to Father Mike, he also believes that this word, and there's a lot of evidence for this that he can explain that I couldn't, that this word has to do with, with a special heavenly knowledge. And so when someone has been, when something has been revealed from heaven, they can speak with boldness because it's not just them speaking. And so Hebrews 4.16, we can approach now because Jesus is our high priest, Yom Kippur, the priest enters the temple, he offers sacrifice for the sins of the people and himself. Jesus is the true high priest who enters heaven and offers himself for us. Um, super powerful. Um, but that knowledge of him, that he loves us that way, that he has entered heaven for our salvation, means that you and I can go before God's throne with boldness. How's that rap? <laughs> okay, any more questions tonight? Yeah? This kind of relates to like babies going to heaven. Yeah, this is a really important question. Let's do it really, really briefly. Um, so the, the baby who never had a chance, or, or even like, you know, people in history who never had a chance to know about God but never got baptized, are they, can they go to heaven? So the Catholic answer to that is yes. So we don't know, right? We, like, we don't know for sure that they are in heaven, right? Like, whenever someone says, I know, I know this person's heaven, I know that person's not, I'm a little skeptical. Saints are the one exception, right? We talked about that. The only way the church canonizes saints is that there's, they examine their life, fine-tooth comb, and then they remember Spaceballs where they say comb the desert? Love that scene. Do you remember that? I'm old. Tell me remember. If, have you ever seen Spaceballs? It's probably like wildly inappropriate and nothing could be produced today. Like, but anyway, they say comb the desert and this guy, they take it literally and so instead of searching like with a fine-tooth comb, they have these giant combs, and they're combing the desert. Uh, brilliant. Okay. Um, babies, right? Oh, I don't know how I got on that. So, so people who weren't baptized and lived in other cultures, what we believe is that if anyone goes to heaven, if they go to heaven, they go because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of his love, his redemption, his resurrection. That's the only way someone can go to heaven. But we, but we are bound to follow God's commandments. God can act however he wants. And we're, we'll talk about that with time. And, and the last thing I would say about that is that with babies, you know, the church doesn't have an official stance. Basically, we just say, we don't know. Um, I think that there's great, I don't think anyone in their right mind would say those babies are not, you know, in a place of happiness and joy, whatever. 
in Romans 2, in other places, St. Paul says that even those who aren't Christians or Jews, he's really talking about Jews, he says that God wrote the law on our hearts. That also happens in 2 Corinthians 3. Um, but basically, right, like, what we believe is that faith is the best possible thing. It is the truth. It is liberating. It brings salvation and joy and everything else. But if you lived in, you know, 13th century Thailand, um, and you never heard of Jesus Christ, you never heard of Judaism, guess what? No one from that time period in Thailand is going to die and say, wait, I wasn't supposed to commit adultery? Come on! Like, how was I supposed? No one's going to say that. God has written the law on every human heart. And so, Paul says in Romans 2, that those who did not have God's instruction, that they still will be judged by the law, because God wrote it on every human heart. There's so much more. If we had more time, I'd love to do another hour tonight, but we don't. Um, so next time, we're going we're gonna to talk about kingdom and my question for you to think about this week when you go home is how does the New Testament start and why does it start the way it starts? And most people, the first chapter of the New Testament is something they skip over. The New Testament starts a very specific way and it starts that way for a very specific reason. And next week we're going to talk about that. Okay? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we bless you and praise you. We pray for our country, for our world. Lord, we pray for healing. We pray that all the peoples of the world will be gathered into the one church. Uh, that we would be great messengers of your goodness, of your mercy, of your love. Lord, help us to bring unity where there is division, uh, healing where there is discord. Bless all those here tonight. Bless those at home. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you all. See you next Wednesday. Mine green. I know. I said